And I had gotten, I had gotten like the preliminary way back in like 2009. Mm. But they didn't, that was, the, that was just like somebody being like, it is, you probably have this thing. And they didn't really tell me anything about it. And then they did, they gave me like a card to refer to somebody else that they were like, this person could diagnose you definitively. And then I like called that person and they were like, oh, it's 99% certain that you have this. But they didn't, again, yeah. told me nothing helpful. <laughs> so I was like, okay, this is like more meaningless medical information. You had already been reading up on in the meantime, I assume. So many years ago. Yeah, I guess so. If somebody told me that I probably had a thing or likely or even possibly had a thing, I would just be on WebMD or whatever all the time. Right. So it's it's complicated because I've had medical problems since I was a small child, you know. It's like I had four eye surgeries to be able to see. You know, I mean, I had like severe lead and mercury poisoning from when I was like probably from the 70s you know they don't know how far back but probably you know maybe i was born with it um and you know i had like digestive problems like i couldn't turn food into energy for 20 some years you know so it's like you get to the point where you're your medical miracle that you've survived it all it sounds like yeah my my best friend he's like you are keith richards you have the like the organs that should not work i don't dig you know it's like and i got i had so many false diagnoses in my life that mm-hmm. I stopped, you know, they told me I had like diseases that like only happened to like middle-aged black women when I was 20. And, and, you know, and, and to say, you know, I, I was like, okay, I could like, it's plausible that that could have yeah. happened, but it seems unlikely. There is this thing that happens when somebody, when you hear about something and you're like, oh, that sounds like that could explain a lot. Yeah. All of a sudden you go out of your way to chalk everything that had happened in your life up to that particular thing. Right. So somebody says this is a possibility, and you're like, oh, everything suddenly makes sense now. Right. So, you know, so it's a little bit, I had gone down that road so many times of being like, oh, I need to like thoroughly understand this condition that I am likely afflicted with. But in this case, it was more that I was like, okay, nobody actually wants to say it definitively. And now I understand that's because of like all these legal reasons of like Mm -hmm. who can diagnose, like you need a certain kind of specialist. And then the, the first person that was like, that said I could give you definitive diagnosis. He was like, and it is, you know, $260 per hour or whatever, you know? And I, and then I was like, well, how many hours does it take? And he's like, Oh, it could be 10. This is just the process of diagnosing autism. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and then at that time, you know, that was like our state, you know, we have like a socialized healthcare in Oregon, like from the Black Panthers uh, that had been established like around 1970, but they had been taking the teeth out of it one by one. Do they still use the spectrum? Is that still accepted? Okay. Is that 10 hours because you have a sort of lower impact version of it? No. So the problem is like, you know... When you're a kid, you know, there's not a whole lot. Well, they call it comorbidity, which I feel like is, like, the worst term to sure. use. But it just means you have, like, a whole bunch of things going on. So when you're a kid, you don't. You're pure. You have, like, one... Oh, so, like, you've, you've picked up baggage during your life that complicates a diagnosis. Yeah. So if somebody had gotten to you earlier, it would have been easier. And so normally you get diagnosed when you have biological children, you know, because I'm too old to have been measured in grade school or as a child or at birth or whatever. When you have biological children, you mean that the, the child is diagnosed or the parent is diagnosed? Both. Because it's almost all it's it's genetic. So it almost always comes from the parent. But I suspect it's it's probably a combination of your being older because it, this seems like something they really started diagnosing really in earnest in, you know, what, like the 90s, maybe 92. Yeah, that would have been the heyday for it. That and the fact that, again, if you 
had what was considered to be a more severe form of autism, then likely you would have been checked out earlier. Well, so there, I had a perfect storm, you know, so like I wasn't parented as a kid. Like I, I kind of was sent to live with my grandpa. So my dad had multiple strokes and like we lived on disability and social security. And so like, you know, I was just another giant pain in the ass, you know? So like I was sent to live with my grandparents mm-hmm. who didn't want nothing to do with me either. And then I got sent back. And then, you know, like when I was a teenager, I ran away and that was kind of the end of that. When was the first time you heard the word autism or Asperger's used in relation to you? 2009. Okay. I mean, right around the time you first started checking into this. Yeah. So, um, I will, t- so do you know the book on subbing? I do. I probably, it's probably on my shelf somewhere. Yeah. So, and this is a little bit of a, a nugget. The author, Dave, worked with, you know, developmentally disabled kids, mm-hmm. like in Portland public schools, 2001 to, you know, when he left 2006, 2005, mm-hmm. maybe. And so, and he would come over to my house when our microcosm's office was still in my house. And he, after school, and he would like tell me about these autistic kids that mm-hmm. he worked with. And, you know, and he was like mar- marveling at the oddity of it. Hmm. And he like told me so much detail about these kids that, you know, I can only imagine that like most people would have picked it up that he was trying to tell me something about myself. Did he tell you that later? No. So you've since I assume. It sounds like there's a degree of venting, certainly. Venting? Of him having had difficult, stressful day come over to talk to you, uh, and some of that stuff will just come out in conversation. Partly that venting, I, I took it at the time, I mean, and whatever, I am a developmentally disabled adult, so sure. like, and this is the way that I would like, yeah. the, and we, you know, and this is like how it manifests. Somebody gives you a big, long-winded thing, and yeah. what they think your takeaway will be is not your takeaway. Sure. You know, and I, I, I think that's also just an aspect of human communication right we often have difficulty coming out saying things and i suspect if he did detect that in you he wasn't gonna try to diagnose it because right. that's not his it's not his job. job yeah so anyway the takeaway that i had was that like he thought this was like very like an amazing part of like human condition mm-hmm. like an amazing oddity of like brain wiring because you know it's like we literally can't tell when other people are joking yeah. until we've been programmed to understand that like people make jokes and that like what that looks like and then we kind of are just guessing we had an interaction like that on facebook recently where i had something up and you said you literally said i'm not sure if you're joking oh yeah yeah that's plausible and it was just like oh that's kind of refreshing everybody has that kind of interaction with people from the time to time and we try to be cool about it you know right right and yeah and i you know to me it was more memorable when i made a joke or i attempted to make a joke Mm -hmm. perhaps failed that I was like, one day I'm going to be on Brian's podcast. And yeah. you're like, you've been on the podcast yeah, multiple yeah, yeah. times. And I was like, oh, that was an attempt at a joke. Again, I think that's just like John Rodder was on the show, a mm-hmm. Pacific Northwestern fixture. And we were talking about his sobriety. I listened to that one. Yeah, I, yeah that. I think that's an interesting thing. And I think every single person has this to some degree where you address different things in your life and you expect that that's going to be the cure of everything and realize that, oh, not every single negative thing in my life is necessarily tied to that. And I do think that this is, it it can be a situation where somebody tells you, oh, this is your condition. And all of a sudden you're like, all right, we're going to address this and everything is automatically going to be fine now. So here's the amazing thing. It was 
well, I asked you how you were doing and you're like, everything is fantastic. And, and, you know, and, and so it's like unbelievable or, and so like when I talk about like comorbidity, it's like mm. you, I had just, I had really bad anxiety prior to that point, you know, like social anxiety and just like constant like fear of nothing all the time. And I, you know, and then you just get, you have so many traumatic interactions that like you have, you know, all of those kind of symptoms. And, and, you know, and I had like severe depression through most of my adulthood, you know? And then when I got that, even before the diagnosis, when we just started working through the like problems that were real, you know, that was like when I met my current partner, like, over a decade ago and like have been in the same relationship that is like the first relationship where I feel like somebody like understands me, respects me, listens to me, laughs at my jokes. So how how much of it is being mindful? I mean, how much of, of addressing this is just sort of being clear of the situations as they unfold? So it's twofold. I think it's like one part of like me being aware and like not thinking that my gaffes are other people's fault. And then on the other hand, it's like me disclosing because then it's like they don't. So this is the part, the, the trouble. What's what I call the holistic disability is that like your people, when somebody misbehaves, they assume that they're an asshole and it's hard to like look at mutual misbehavior or like mutual fault. Mm-hmm. It's like this person did this thing to me. I need somebody to console me about this mm-hmm. way the person treated me. And so it's like, and to us, like, we're so used to being the ones that, like, screwed up that we apologize all the time, mm-hmm. you know. And it just doesn't create a healthful sort of long-term narrative. So the you have to be like, this is what's going on with, you know. So you have to say things like, I can't tell if you're joking, which is not something that, like, your people say. That's interesting. Disclosure is an interesting idea. You don't necessarily want to be in every situation you, you walk into to be like, Hey, I'm the autistic guy. <laughs> right. Let's let that color all of our interactions. When you do disclose something like that, when you say, I can't tell if you're joking, how much do you feel the need to unpack it beyond that? So I did this performance for there's like a, this is a, this is a, this is a big tangent. I'm going to try and keep it as compact as it's I fine. can. You've listened to my show before, right? <laughs> you're saying all these things and I'm like, oh man, that. Anxiety, depression, like right. I'm like oh, I don't know, and so that's why they can't diagnose it in adults. Those because those things read yeah. louder, yeah, and because we pick those up this week as we roll down the hill. Yeah, of life. but we pick it up way, way worse. Like yeah. suicidal ideation, we are we are the masters of that. Unemployment, we're really good at that. It's yeah. like all that stuff. But so it's amazing. All that stuff goes away when you deal with your, you know, because this yeah. is the root cause. To the disclosure piece, um, I did a stage performance um, kind of right after I was diagnosed, actually. So when I was writing Good Trouble, I had gotten, I had done a, a podcast interview, or actually it was a radio interview, but, you know, almost as good as a podcast. And somebody heard that interview that produces, like, this stage show about sex, and it's like a storytelling thing in Portland, you know, old Portland. Hang on. Home. A storytelling show about sex in Portland? Yeah, yeah. Go on. Who would believe it? And they, you know, they were like, we heard this interview. You're a great performer. We would love you to come and perform a piece. And I was like, I'm sorry. I just don't have any, like, I'm a very boring person and I have no stories about sex. Yeah. 
I would totally be happy to do it, but I've got no stories. I'm sure they get that all the time. Most people probably think that about themselves, right? And then I had, um, we had a staff person at the time, and she was like, I guess you don't want to tell them the stories about when you worked as like a tickle slave, huh? And I was like, oh yeah, I never thought of that having to do with sex before. Mm. That's a good story. Yeah, I'll go tell them that. And then, um, you know, what they do, they're like, they're story refiners too. So yeah. they like help you edit your story. They workshop. Yeah, yeah. So they would like come with me and, you know, they would be like, okay, tell it. And you're not allowed to like write it down. You like, you're really mm-hmm. performing from memory, you know? And so I did it and they were like, you have to sort of address the part where why you thought this was all totally fine, but like every one of your friends thought this was super weird. And then, you know, cause eventually like I had to stop doing the work because I couldn't find friends to like, sit on top of me and tickle me while I was mostly naked anymore. So it was a situation where you were the only person who didn't get the sexual undercurrents of that? Yeah. And so they had to, you know, so they said, like, you have to sort of give us something for the audience to understand where this giant disconnect is. And I was like, you know, and I was like, well, the reality is that I just found out that I am autistic. And they're like, okay, that makes sense. But you want to, like, simplify that to Mm -hmm. its barest piece. So as I literally learned from professional story editors only to give them the tip of the iceberg to like give them enough information to work backwards. So that's why you can just say like, I'm sorry, I can't tell if you're joking. Yeah. You don't need to be like, and you know, and this is the other like hallmark of autistic people is like, we speak in like nine paragraph, you know, interjections, <laughs> you know? So it's like learning to be a good self editor yeah. is vital because it like makes society parsable. Having that knowledge, though, do you feel that that colors your interaction with people in real time now? So this is the thing is like I used to have before I knew before I got diagnosed, before I was like dealing with the specifics of that. I used to have a lot of conflict with people that I didn't really understand. And then that just all went away. And I mean, like the old, you know, like there's probably still people that are bitter about that or whatever. Sure. But like I no longer have that kind of conflict with people because I'm no longer like missing the communications that they're giving me. Does it feel like AA from the standpoint of when you go back in time and realize these negative interactions that you had had with people that you kind of want to go back and readdress some of these things? Oh, yeah. I mean, and I certainly tried. But a lot of it is the bigger problem isn't like my behavior it's like, in a lot of cases, it's like, I never would have allowed most of these people into my life at yeah. all because of the way that they treated me in the first place. You don't want to use it as a crutch. No, no, not you at know, all. You don't want to, again, say that, to just chalk up all of the sort of negative things that happen in your life because of this right, right. admittedly large thing. Yeah. And so you want to, you know, you want to, like, learn from your mistakes yeah. and you want to, like, take responsibility for your behavior and then use that as a learning toolbox. Rather than being like, you know, because I feel like that is, I've certainly met people that they're like, and I I mentor, I guess this is the better way to put it, where I I mentor a lot of teens, 20s, and 30s people, autistic people Mm -hmm. now, and a lot of them have tremendous trouble dating, as I did, you know? You know, and so they're always like, well, how do I screen these people? And so then I, like, I figured out the perfect screening question is like, how would you have, what regrets do you have about how you behaved? In what do you previous? mean by screening? Screening the, the date? Yeah, yeah. Like when they're so the meeting. So first, the first date. Yeah, yeah. This is, this is sort of a flare you can send up. Mm-hmm. Or even like before you go on a date. And so you just ask them, what regrets do you have about how you behaved in previous relationships? Interesting. And it's like a difficult question. 
But you like want somebody with that amount of self-awareness. It is, again, one of the reasons why it's difficult is this idea of disclosure in that it's a lot to put on someone, you yeah. know, and that in and of itself could potentially close off some relationships before they begin. Because, you know, you want things to be light when you first start the dating process. Mm-hmm. But now, I mean, kids today, it's different. You know, they are much more like nothing is off the table. Yeah. Like you can, and this is the part that like, cause I was like, this is a heavy one and not everyone will put up with it. But as you might imagine, most people when posed with that question are like, I was great. Every person I ever dated was nuts. You yeah. know, is like yeah. their sort of canned response. Lack of self-awareness. Yeah. And so that is like, you know, it's just like the perfect red flag rather than them being like, whoa, disengage. That's a wild question. From the standpoint of somebody who would answer the question that way just naturally wouldn't be compatible with somebody who's autistic. Yeah, because they're going to s- not take responsibility for their role in the relationship or they're like they haven't done the work to understand yeah. how they impact other people. Was it clear as you were going through this? that there was a book in it? I mean, at what point did you actually sit down and start writing? You know, I don't remember. I think with that one, it was the, like, the 20th anniversary was coming up, and I think that was Of microcosm. Yeah. And and I had been diagnosed a couple years prior to that. You felt, regardless of this, that you wanted to write something big or do something big for the anniversary? I didn't really have... I mean, and I'm sure everybody says this, but it's like every time I make a book, I'm like never again. And it just so I had, takes it out of you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's just it's like you'd put years into something like that, and then it it just feels you know you have this like tremendous upward curve, yeah. and then it just plateaus to nothing immediately, you know. And so it's kind of like one of those, you know, it's like people read it and whatever, but like not every one of them like tells you what they think about it. That plateau is after the book is released. You mean? Yeah. Okay, that's a promotional period. Yeah, and just like, you know, you get fan mail and hate mail and, you know, whatever feedback. And you get, you know, there's like a thing that, you know, I'm I'm like now impervious to, but like at one time, you know, it's like the way the human brain takes negative feedback. It's like 10 to 1 against positive feedback. Yeah, I've been on the internet before. Right, right. So it's like that, but when it's your... Like something you put years into. Sure. It's got to be like a hundred to one. It's not just something you put years into, but this is, I mean, this is easily the most personal thing you've done, right? Probably, yeah. At least on that scale. Yeah. And so that was kind of the thing. And then my last, um, I don't remember what my book was before that, but that, you know, was not in any way personal. It's interesting to do something for a 20th anniversary that really is so personal. It is a book about autism in a way. Yeah. And that was more, so... I guess what happened was the people at work, management, I guess you would say, they were like, okay, we're, you know, like this is coming up, like you should do a book about it. Like that's the thing that makes the most yep. sense. You were like cycling through all, all of the Calminus Manifesto terms in your brain to try <laughs> right. to come up how to classify this group of workers. And, and I'm like, you know, this is, and it's also like, this is like six years ago. So it's like not on the tip of my memory, you know? And, um, and, you know, that was like sort of the idea. And, you know, we had done, like, anniversary things before, but, like, 20 is, like, yeah. a very round number. It's not only a round number, but it's just completely improbable, given the scale, like, what you do in the scale of what you do 20 years feels yes. crazy. Yeah, exactly. And that was kind of the thing, you know, and when we did our 10th anniversary, we got, like, all this press, and, mm-hmm. you know, people were like, wow, this is, like, such a huge landmark. And then for the 20th anniversary, like, it was, like, the opposite. People were like, yeah, we're not going to do anything for that. That's, like... 
not a news event. We're not... People are taking you for granted. Yeah, yeah. And that's part of it. And then on another scale, they're like... There's just that many fewer magazines. Yeah, and it's like in, you know, and like maybe you've like committed some, like you've stopped advertising with them or you've committed some other kind of sin. All these infractions you forgot about. And so it's like, you know, 20 years is a long time to like piss off some random person that like now happens to be like, I don't know, say the executive editor of Portland Monthly. Somebody didn't get like a free copy of something 15 years ago and now they run the paper. Yeah, that may have been exactly literally what happened. But, you know, like say a prestigious monthly magazine and you know and that like taken you know like to the extreme nationally whatever not to discredit there was a few um new noise shout out did a great little piece like got the autism Mm -hmm. part did the whole thing but so like when people were like yeah we're not gonna do that i was like okay well the book is then makes more sense you know to write a book because the book can exist independently of the anniversary. Yeah, and it's like, then it's like, we can celebrate it. And so this is the other part, is like, I had written about my life for most of, I don't know, most of my life. You know, I had written about my life from like the time I was like 13 or 14 years old, you know? And then um, up until the point when I was like, oh six oh seven or something and then i just kind of stopped do you remember what the shift was was it just getting too busy or um it was partly too busy and then it was that thing where it was like i was writing about my life and i would meet people and they would feel ownership of my life and they would feel like they knew me and they would feel and you know and like i hear aaron comet bus talk about this a lot where he's like people think they know me because of what i share but that's not even 1% of what's going on. Mm. And it's not actually what's my day-to-day life at all. To some degree, that's something that you want. Like, you want that personal connection with people. Yeah. It just becomes awkward when you actually have to interact with them. And so, I mean, it got to the point where I didn't want it. You know, it got to the point, like, in 07, where I was just like, I just want to be, like, working at my desk on other people's work. Were there specifics of things that you felt like cases where you crossed the line or shared too much? I mean, it sounds... You're describing me a little more abstractly than that. Right. It wasn't really... So, I did a tour in 2003. Um, it was like... There was, I think, five of us on the tour. And we, like... We did a giant show in Minneapolis. Um, with You know, with and it was, like, coincided with, like, a number of bands. Mm-hmm. So, we were, like, interspersed between the bands to perform. And I told a story about what I didn't understand was my depression at that time. And, like, how, like, trying to, like, just realizing that I was, like, deeply unhappy. And it was kind of one of those things where, you know, there was, like, 500 people there or something. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, like, a weirdly intimate attempt to do that kind of thing. And, And it was supportive. And, you know, I mean, there was definitely people... That came up afterwards that were like, whoa, that was like the bravest thing I've ever seen. Like, mm. you did that, you know, like, tell me more about it. Let's talk, you know. But then it kind of, you know, and then like four or five years later, I would like go to these conferences and like run into those same people. And then they'd, they'd be like, oh, what's going on with you now? What's mm. the, you know, and it just wasn't. So like, there's a line, like my, my. What's going on with you now? Not from the standpoint of like, hey, what are you about to, but. What's the next part of the story for me? Yeah, yeah. Like, you are here to entertain yeah. me. Yeah. And your life is public record, so give me mm-hmm. more, you know? And my, my partner and I have this, like, terminology, vernacular now, that is like, um, you know, you have your, like, supporters, you have your fans, and you have your super fans. 
and your super fan like has no level of boundary like has no realization of like how they're impacting your life or like what they are doing that might be inappropriate or like negatively impacting you because they just have like that level of entitlement and they like might just you know monopolize your time or like cling to you when other people are trying to talk to you or interrupt other people and i just felt like that was sort of what i was attracting more and more and it was, yeah it just makes it really unpleasant it is directly correlated with how much of yourself you're willing to give up right and i had never so this was the thing is like I grew up with no security and, like, no safety, and so it was, like, very refreshing to, like, confide in large public groups and have them, like, cling to me and, you know, like, give me positive feedback is what it felt like at the time, but Mm -hmm. then I didn't realize what I was giving away. And so it was, like, by that point, you know, I'm, like, in my 30s, and then I'm, like, this is whoa, like I've basically given up all rights to privacy about my life. And I didn't really like that. The reason why we went down this road is because this is your way of saying that's why you gave up that aspect of yourself where you were offering up all that personal information. However, a couple of years later, you start working on this book, which is deeply personal. So it's part, it's like two parted, you know, it was very apparent that 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 is the kind of work that people had wanted from me for Mm. a long time. And I just wasn't able to produce that kind of work for like a multitude of reasons. Yeah. But the biggest one being like, I didn't have perspective on or understand my own life. You know, like I didn't under, you know, I thought I had a very normal, you know, our family of four was raised on $12,000 a year in Cleveland. Yeah. Like, you know, like just as the city got out of bankruptcy, you know, and like my dad was disabled, like throughout my whole, you know, until he died. And, you know, and it's like, I thought we were middle class, you know, it's like I hadn't because there was people that were worse off than we were, you know, and it's like, when you look at it like that, you know, I just had never stopped to like bear perspective on any of it. And so this was like a way to sort of step back and put it together and figure out the narrative. Step back just in terms of taking time off, but understanding that at some point you were going to get back to it. No, I mean, when I stopped writing about myself in 2007, I didn't ever intend to go back yeah. to it. Because I just thought, like, the solution is to stop talking. Yeah. But so here's the problem. It's like when people feel like they know you, and they feel like they're intimately involved in your life, when you stop talking they assume the worst. How much of, of you putting this book together was, was motivated by feeling that people wanted to hear or needed to hear more about you? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess I didn't, I didn't really think about it. I was more like, I mean, you know, it's like when you, it's funny because like I have been a book publisher for 24 mm-hmm. years, you know, it's another big anniversary coming up there, buddy. I don't... <laughs> wait, wait, whoa, <laughs> fair warning. Um, and so it's funny because when I'm working on somebody else's book, I'm like very aware of all the sales handles and sure. like how it works and like who, you know, what the audience is and all that. But it's like when it's my own stuff, I have no perspective. How much is writing about your life? Not just in that much detail but having done it for so long skew your perspective on yourself you know and that was the thing where like i felt like all the other like everything i had written about my like nothing i had ever written was reprinted in that book like everything was original to that book you know and that's because every prior version was not an honest representation of who i was because it wasn't like the full picture did you upon realizing this very important aspect of yourself and upon setting out to write this new book was part of the process going back and reading some of those old things. Oh yeah. Yeah. I read everything. And it was like, 
and so this is the weirder part. It's like, and I, and I've heard this echoed from so many other autistic people. When you read things that you wrote before mm. your diagnosis, it really feels like it was written by somebody else. And that, you know, and like, obviously that sounds like bullshit to like anybody else, but it's like really very much feels that way. Are those only things that are personal about yourself or do you feel that Anything. knowing this, this has made you a markedly different writer? Not just as a writer. It's like the perspective is different. Like the way yeah. of viewing the world is different. And so that was the bigger thing. It's not just like writing about myself. When you get completely out of your head and your own life, what's an example of something that you would have interpreted completely different because you didn't know that about yourself? I mean, I, the big one is like, I thought I was going on adventures through the 90s. And in reality, I was like not dealing with my problems is like probably the biggest one. You know, it's like I went like the first time I ran away... I thought I was bored and needed something to do, whereas in hindsight, it was like my home was very violent, and I was, like, needing to escape that. And that's just, you know, and it's like, how could I not see that? You were, what, a teenager at the time? Yeah. I mean, that's part of being a teen right. to some degree, right? Right, but then, like, writing about that in my 20s and not realize putting it together even then, and even when other people, like, felt like <laughs> I knew that. And yeah. like alluding to it and me missing it, you know, or them or, or like people being like, oh, I really enjoyed the thing about, you know, your like way of not coping. And I'd be like, what are you talking about? You write a book that does in a lot of ways revolve around that realization and that part of you. You know, do you feel that if you do set out to do another piece, I know there's always that like, again, idea of, of never wanting to do this again. But what role will your autism play in the book itself, in stories about yourself. Well, you know, and it's funny because that's the first role that I don't mind occupying, oddly enough. You know, like I really hated being the zines guy. Okay, why? Be because the questions are always, it's like every interview is the same five to ten questions. That's because most people are bad at interviewing. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, you're going you're gonna to have, I'm sure, like, we've circled the drain on a lot of questions that you've gotten around your autism regardless. Um, but you're more developed in how you ask them. I don't know that that means you're not going to get the same five questions. Does it just mean that you're better equipped to answer those questions? Maybe. maybe. I mean, in that, yeah, I guess that is one difference that, yeah, I mean, I guess it's more the thing. Yeah, I guess you're right. It's like people are bad at research. People are bad at interviewing. Yeah, it's not even that. Like I had this conversation with a, an interview subject recently and he very much enjoyed it. And he asked me, and I'm not like, I'm, I don't, I'm not saying this about myself on the back. Um, cause I've definitely had my fair share of bad interviews, but he asked me why can't more or all interviews be like that? And I said, I think there's just a certain degree of he's on the phone driving through Topeka and he's on with, you know, somebody in alt weekly in Sarasota yeah, and that person's just trying, it's not because they're, they're bad at their job. They have 300 words and they have an hour to do it. Yeah. 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 And maybe they're not super familiar with the music. Maybe they don't want to still an interesting hour long interview into 200 words. A lot of it is just completely circumstantial, I think, regardless. But it, I mean, it sounds like a big part of it is just that because these are questions that you're grappling with yourself, you're happier to answer them. They're more a top of mind. Yeah, I guess that's part of it. I mean, and I do, I mean, like I said, I mentor a lot of young people. And so it's like having to like, pull out that toolbox and like have people that trust me and like want to talk about this stuff day in and day out. That helps. Whereas, you know, and I guess it's like, you know, and I guess acceptance is like the thing that's lacking. 
Yeah. I mean, like we're finally moving as a in, culture into a period of awareness. You know, like people know it exists, but they now know it exists because like there's a contingent that started in Portland with a pediatrician circulated the rumor that vaccines cause autism. That is now like a, a national familiar. problem. Yeah, you know? I, I am aware of a lot of people that currently have mumps in New York City. And you know, and yeah, New York now had to pass a law to yeah. be like you can't not get shots because you are afraid they cause autism. And and so that created a level of awareness that we did not have before. But you know, so it's like I have. I mean, I will tell you that I've been working on a new work about like relationships for people with autism that is a very different kind of book but it's all I mean I guess it's like a book for about relationships for all kinds of people but you know it's cemented to be for people that struggle with that the most the vaccine thing I was gonna say the vaccine thing is interesting of course it is for a number of reasons <laughs> yes you know, the largest of which being that it's you know completely scientific mumbo jumbo and bullshit yeah but I think what you're getting at is you know perhaps the question of us saying in the very small chance that there's a possibility that these two things are connected that we're treating autism as though it's a, a necessarily bad thing. It does sort of seem to be the thing of asking somebody who considers themselves progressive, given a choice whether or not they'd rather have a gay child. Right. And them essentially saying, I've got nothing wrong with homosexuality, but Still I know that their gay. life would be easier if they were straight. Right. There's an interesting question to grapple with, which is, if you didn't have autism, perhaps your life would be easier. But are we saying that if there's a chance that this is a byproduct of something that it's that necessarily having autism is a net negative. Right. And so, and this is the fascinating thing is like, and I firmly believe, and this seems to be generally held belief that like the only reason that being autistic is difficult is because of the stigma and the way that other people treat us. But prior to it being diagnosed or understood as an idea, there's a natural level of, before we have the language to describe it, there's awkwardness of social interactions. Those things exist. It's not necessarily a stigma because I know what autism is as a concept. Sure. But it's like if you backpedaled it, it's like it's another it's, you know, it's like any other marginality. Like the yeah. only reason that we are the margin is because you are 98.4% of the mm -hmm. population. Beyond that, and, and this is independent of autism generally, it's just nobody wants to be told to change what they do to accommodate other people. Right, right. That's yeah. a broader issue that we have as a culture. And, and, you know, and it's like, if you look at like the 70s, as far as queer culture, mm -hmm. it's like very much in the same place where mm. people are like, we will accept you as soon as you act like we do. And it's very much the language. Is there inherently, is there always going to be an issue, again, depending on whether pe where people fall on the spectrum, where it's just regardless of acceptance that there's just going to be difficulty holding down a job, for example? No, because, the, the, again, the, all that falls to stigma yeah. and acceptance. You know, it's like what is, you know, it's like there are certain traits in a person that are tolerated and prioritized, and they often have very little to do with that person's ability to do their job. Development disabilities like i don't think it's up for debate that there are certain ones you know certain level where an average job it would make it difficult having what we would consider sort of an average job because of that i mean if you look at like we rule the stem world like yeah. we run the entire stem world it's a matter of diagnosing and finding the roles that that person would be good at 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, and similarly, it's like yeah. if somebody that is maybe like less ambitious or wants a less stressful job, like we also rule the data entry field. There are just deeper problems of capitalism then that we have to grapple with, and that capitalism is not good necessarily at finding people the right job. Like, well, hopefully, it's, it's. I mean, it's like theoretically a meritocracy, and you'll get there eventually. But there's certain people in certain situations where you have to be more proactive about guiding them there. It's part of it. I mean, I feel like if capitalism was good, it would exploit us rather than kick us to the curb. Sure. If capitalism was good. I mean, if it was good at being capitalism. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. not even an efficient form of capitalism mm. to, you know, so I feel like this is more like patriarchal yeah. values. The books are a piece of it. I mean, maybe you would call good trouble activism in a sense in terms of raising awareness. I mean, is that a fair characterization? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that. so I didn't, I mean, again... I did not have a lot of intent. I had not enough emotional distance from it when I was doing it to like think of why I was doing it. I was doing what I was told, which is like a very familiar and comfortable role throughout my life. By whom? Like by the, you know, the people on at Microcosm who were like ostensibly saying this is a very good idea. Like it would, you know, like if you're comfortable doing this, you should do this. Did it benefit from not having distance? I, I mean, again, I. Well, I you mean, have distance from it now. Right. I mean, and I like look at it and I'm like, yeah, there's, I mean, I'm like not embarrassed of what's, you know, like of the disclosure or whatever, you know, and it's not even the disclosure. It's just that again, now, if you wrote right now specifically about being diagnosed, you would write a very different book. Yeah, that's true. And I would have a lot more of a sophisticated look at it and approach to it. And I know a lot, I mean, I'm like enmeshed in those communities now, which I wasn't then. Which is because I do think it does and could benefit from plain language, for example, of, you know, you now referring to things now that you know the right words, the, you know, the sort of the more clinical term, it might not have that same kind of appeal. There's something to the idea of you figuring it out as you go along. Right. Yeah. And I think so. And it was interesting that my, um, the review that I found to be the funniest was like a psychiatrist who Mm. was reviewing it for like an academic journal. And, you know, and he like, found two very I, I mean seemingly at random sentences that were describing like my feelings about a specific occurrence and he was trying to hold that they were in opposition to each other whereas like and you know and I'm, and I'm, I'm guessing they're like a hundred pages apart in yeah. the book and so it was fascinating to me that like to him we are such a subject to study that you wouldn't understand that to be like me being confused or having like an evolving viewpoint or like, you know, cause it's like years are passing in the book. Like obviously my point of view about my life changes like anybody else. But in his mind, he's like his like summation of all that was like, it would be actually, it would be nice to know how Beale actually feels about anything. And, you know, we should stick to the medical literature on this subject in the future. Do you think that there was, looking at it now, again, with a little bit of proper distance, that that there was a lack of, not self-awareness, but a lack of that distance of you being able to really extrapolate some of these things? I think I could properly extrapolate them, you know, because it's like, I'm not, it's not like I was like looking at my life up until yesterday. It was like, Mm. you know, I mean, I like, for example, I interviewed the treasurer at my high school, you know, about like there was a money embezzlement uh, scandal like after I graduated where like millions of dollars disappeared and you know and and it was you know it was like my like 
I'm a journalist moment to be like, what happened? You know, tell me about that. And, you know, and so it's like, and I did, and I, you know, I looked at like historical figures and trends and, you know, like from where I was Mm. from and trying to really like pin the narrative. And I, you know, I mean, I interviewed dozens of people that had, you know, at each point in my life to sort of make sure that like things that I couldn't fact check were accurate. You know, I mean, I really put in the months on, you know, on all this stuff. And then, you know, and it's like I had a weird moment when I was a teenager that Insane Clown Posse hang, hung out at the record store by my parents' house. And so I would, like, run into them casually as they're, like, handing out flyers and demo tapes. And the owner of that record store, like, vehemently denies that this happened because I think it's, like, you know, at the time they were sure. not anyone in particularly special. Just a bunch of weirdos in clown makeup. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. but things like that where it's not, like... You know, and then how I have a bit more of a photographic memory in some ways, and then and I, and then my um, my friend Bria, like she put it best, where she was like, "You have sort of a clinical distance on your own life that like most people could never have." You know that you can like look at these events like unobstructed by your emotions, and you think that's a byproduct of autism? Yeah, I think so because it's more that I'm like. I'm able to, like, take in other people's perspectives, even that, like, conflict with my own. So do you think that having autism has made you a better memoirist? I mean, I feel like I'm the worst person to have an answer to that question. But, you know, I mean, I think it's like, I I mean, I guess it's like the question is then, like, what is the purpose of a memoir? Getting back to this this idea that people with autism are thriving, you know, STEM, for example, you know, that there are certain aspects of this that feel like a superpower. Yeah, yeah. And I, I do feel that way. I mean, I, I that's a slightly contentious assertion, like, sure. community-wide. But I do feel that way very much so. Because it's like, once you understand that, like, everybody else is... Like, that it's like the way that the world looks at you is the only problem. And that, like, mm-hmm. once you learn to accept yourself and don't... And, you know, you, like... I guess on one hand, understand that like some of your actions are hurtful to other people and like care not to replicate that. Yeah. Then you can understand that like not everything is your fault. You don't want to ask people to change something fundamental about them, but there's an important element in this realization that's like, yeah, in order to better function in the world, there are some edges that I need to blunt. So, I mean, and I guess this is the thing that like, you know, and I, I am writing this other book right now, so this is yeah. how it came into this. There's two kinds of empathy. There's, like, hmm. the part of empathy that, like, causes, which you are very good at. Like, you are actually exceptionally good at as an interviewer, where you can read your subject and take from them what they are expressing on a deeper level. And then there's the other kind of empathy where you feel that very deeply inside, you know. And so it's like a, um, a sociopath is very good at the first type of empathy. Not what are you saying, Joe? Lots of people are good at it. But they are very good yeah. at that and have none of the second kind. I see. So it's like they're very good at reading you. They're and, good chameleons. But don't ha- take on any of your yeah. feelings where it's like when I'm at... So like we had an, a situation at work where we like interviewed somebody that was like super experienced like had 30 years of experience in publishing and you know and it's like me and two other women that are like in management and you know and then i said like what the pay was and everybody else in the room was like at that point it got very awkward i had no awareness of this whatsoever 
And and they were both like it was palpable. And even like somebody that was not looking at anyone at that time that just happened to be passing through the room was like, I felt it. And I was like, man, you people are weird. But that is apparently, you know, and so we are very good at the second kind of empathy. Mm. Like we feel things way more intensely. We just don't often get the signals. And that is sort of the difference. So it's like, I'm very bad at reading people. Mm. I'm very bad at doing the emotional reciprocal mm. labor without having to put like a intense amount of intellectual ability to like figure out what that expression means. But when I do, it's like way more meaningful to me. There you go. That was Joe Beal of Microcosm. You can check out all of Microcosm's books over at Microcosm Publishing, including Good Trouble, the title that we discussed at length in that interview. Thanks to Joe for taking the time to do that. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube now. Like us on Facebook. If you have any feedback, it's rolcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rylcast.tumblr.com. That's the first and best place to get all your RIYL related information. And that's all we got for this week. So stick around because we're going to be back at just about this time next week with another episode of RIYL. 